You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Solar A Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, and Wattwatches, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Energy Insiders podcast. This week we're going to the other side of the country. We're going to Western Australia, a big state with a very, very interesting uh, challenge ahead of it with on energy. It's a um, isolated grid. It's not connected to the rest of Australia. It's relied pretty much on coal and gas. The consumers have never actually paid the real price of electricity there because it's been subsidised until very recently up to about one third of the cost. It's made some interesting decisions about refurbishing coal-fired generators. The Merger Power Station, a couple of hundred million dollars was thrown into that for no good reason. And um, I suppose in the eastern states, when we hear of the government talking about putting more money into Liddell and um, having that sold, it's uh, possibly the same problem. At the same time, WA seems to have a unique opportunity to lead the world, indeed, in the development of microgrids. Because while it hasn't been a huge investor in large-scale wind and solar, there's an awful lot of rooftop solar going on and some really interesting developments in battery storage and microgrids of all different kinds and it's really quite fascinating and that's what the subject of it is today so I'm going to introduce our guests. Um, first one of course is David Leach, our regular contributor. David, how are you? Well, thanks Giles and hello to Jessica and uh, one thing you left out of the West Australian power system uh, that interests a lot of us is the fact that it's a capacity market as opposed to the national electricity market, which is an energy market, uh, one of the oldest debates in the generation side, but not the modern debate. Well, that's an interesting one too. And just before I introduce um, uh, our special guest, that capacity market's had an interesting um, an interesting side effect, and I'm fascinated by this one diesel plant out in Meriden, which got built seven or eight years ago, I don't think has ever been switched on, and doesn't want to be switched on, because if it ever had to burn diesel, it would probably lose money, but it's sitting there just in case, and um, it's been pocketing about $15 million a year, but that's another story. Look, I'd like to introduce um, Jessica Shaw. She is the MP for Upper Swan, no, for Swan Hills. Um, she's a member of the Labor government and more importantly she's um, chair of this new study into microgrids and associated technologies. Jessica, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, Giles. I'm very pleased to, uh, to be chatting to you guys tonight. Well, look, tell us a little bit about this um, inquiry into microgrids. We've been reading the submissions over the last couple of um, hours and the last couple of days. Fascinating stuff. What's it, what, it, what is it about and what's it trying to do? Well, microgrids, um, as you flagged in your um, in your introductory in, in, in your introductory comments, is a is a fairly new development both here in WA and I think around the world, and it does reflect the fact that we do have an isolated system. We have been seeing um, over the last decade, really, a, a fundamental change in the way energy is produced and consumed um, in Western Australia, um, which is changing the way both our networks operate in the metropolitan area and in regional Western Australia, and is having some implications for, for the cost of energy and, um, and generally the, the affordability, security, sustainability even of, of the system. And I, uh, prior to, I'm only a, a newly minted uh, member of parliament. I've um, been in the job for 12 months. Prior to that, I had a well over a decade working in the energy industry um, at all points in the energy supply chain and um, thought that 
when we came into Parliament, and, and particularly when government changed 12 months ago, there really hadn't been much in the way of policy reform here for quite some time. But the market is fundamentally changing. So, so we thought that it was a, a great opportunity for us to take a bit of a deep breath, have a look at the way that the system dynamics are shaping up, have a look at the, the structures that we have, and, um, and see if we can't look at ways to maximise the, the energy propositions at all points in the supply chain, but um, and also identify if there are any barriers that, that need to be um, removed from, from both a technical or a regulatory sense. Mm. It's, it's interesting because WA's had a very, very high penetration of rooftop solar, and I think it's got about 900 megawatts, um, which is less than other states, but in a state the size of WA is quite significant. And um, the Australian energy market operator, I think as far back as um, a year or two ago, actually produced predicted, as it has for South Australia, that um, within five to ten years there may be as much rooftop solar capacity or the output at certain times of the day may be more than is um, actual actual demand. So if you picked up a copy of the West Australian this morning on still on the front page, you'd see that as, as a complete catastrophe. But I think the AEMO um, submission and the, um, and, and the witness, um, I think they actually testified last week, um, is a bit more subtle than that. They say, yes, this is a challenge, as is all the transition to renewables, but they see microgrids and using distributed generation, so you're talking about battery storage and demand management and other smart technologies, as a fantastic opportunity. Is, is, is that your sense of what they were saying? Well, certainly um, the increased penetration of PV presents challenges. There's no two ways about that. Um, I think part of the, the issue, though, is perhaps we haven't got the sort of technical smarts or the frameworks in place to allow us to fully optimise the energy system. So I don't think it's necessarily... Um, it's, I'm not going to go chicken-licking about it and say the sky's falling in. What it does present us with is a real opportunity to, as I said before, look at the way we produce and consume energy. And yes, at certain times of the day, if these technologies are allowed to operate untrammeled, um, there could be some, some issues. But if we get the technical solutions in place and we get the right forms, the right signals coming through the market to encourage the optimisation of those assets, it actually can put downward pressure on prices and certainly lead to a far more sustainable energy system. So I'm certainly not all doom and gloom about this. I think it's really exciting. And when you think about the opportunities associated with these technologies, when you think that we've got so much so many of the primary inputs into these technologies here. There's some opportunity around lithium and around all sorts of um, rare earths that go into the battery manufacture. Um, you know, there's a there's a mining industry opportunity here. There's an advanced manufacturing opportunity. The fact that we've got some of the smartest, most innovative companies in the world right here in Western Australia looking at this stuff. There's a whole heap of opportunity here. And you know, one of the things I would observe is that energy debates tend to get very toxic and very politicised very quickly. And that is a real shame because there are some genuine opportunities in this sector and it's important that we explore them. And the committee that I'm working on is a bipartisan committee. We have, we have well, multi-partisan. We have Labor members, we have Liberal members, we have National Party members. And we all just want to get to the, uh, I guess, scope out the opportunity and make sure we're not missing it. Yeah, um, that's, um, that's interesting. It was... Um... Some of the um, it's, it's interesting to see what the uh, the network operators have been saying about this. 
um, Horizon Power is very excited about the opportunities with microgrids, and um, it's talking about sort of very high renewable penetration. It's actually got a series of microgrids across the um, across the state. I think it looks after about ninety percent of the state, which is an extraordinary size. Um, and Western Power, which does the southwest part, which is the main grid, is also talking about reshaping the grid and has done so for, for a year or so, about into a more modular one rather than just a centralised control. Um, but they both point to some of the um, key barriers, which are really about sort of regulation and whether networks can actually sort of dip into and provide alternatives to the traditional solution to everything, which has just been poles and wires. Um, how far have you got along that, those sort of considerations? So the inquiry um, is, a, as you've identified, is a pretty significant and broad topic. Um, there's a, a, an incredible level of industry interest in it, and the committee's chosen to break it down into two sections. So at this point in our um, inquiry, we are scoping the opportunity. So we're looking at these mining opportunities, we're looking at advanced manufacturing, we're understanding the sorts of benefits that microgrids can deliver in in terms of resilience and, and energy system optimization will then produce a, a part a report identifying the the opportunities in the second phase of our committee we will be looking at barriers and um, there's been quite a bit of evidence that's been put to the committee so far um, about the, the regulatory regime that we have here and the, the way that um, certain signals um, are being sent through markets to encourage the development of these technologies. And um, there's also, there are some technical barriers. So we'll be looking at that in the, in the second half of, uh, of this inquiry. So it interests me because I don't even think everyone agrees necessarily on what a microgrid is. Um, uh, for me, it's something that can be islanded, but you know, a microgrid could be something or within a bigger grid like even the city of Newcastle in New South Wales, or it could be an isolated thing in West Australia that's uh, basically um, off the main grid completely. I was reading about Western Power, where you know, three percent of the customers have fifty-two percent of the network assets. I guess my question, Jessica, is to start with, what have you learnt so far? What's the most important thing you've taken away from the inquiry to date? Well, I think as you quite rightly identified, David, there there is a it, it's almost a contested term what microgrids actually are and how they can be set up and, and, and physically configured. And it's important to appreciate that not one solution is going to sit well with every possible energy need and a, with a situation that's complicated by the fact that we are indeed an isolated system. I mean, the, the considerations that people in regional Western Australia have are really quite different from uh, those in the middle of metropolitan Perth and those on the middle of metropolitan Perth and those on the peri-urban fringe. You could serve 3% of the population. Now, my, I've got an outer metropolitan seat. It, we are really at a, um, at a distributed part of the network rather than at a meshed part of the network. And so considering what the energy solutions are in my part of the world or in regional WA or even within um, the, the denser parts of the network here in the Southwest Interconnected System is, is something that's very important to appreciate. I think you're also quite right insofar as I would say that um, certainly on the evidence that I've seen, um, microgrids, the standard 
accepted definition does anticipate that they can be islanded and they can operate autonomously. But there are things out there like virtual power plants that present to the grid like an individually dispatchable entity, even though they may not be geographically co-located. Um, we're also seeing some interest over here in, in almost... Um, community cooperatives, in particular geographical or local government areas where, where communities would like to go and, and create their own energy systems. And then, of course, we have overlaid across that the fact that we have quite a, an extensive gas distribution network here that um, at the, and some areas of the gas distribution network that are unconstrained, that intersect with very constrained parts of the electricity network. So the intersection between those asset classes and the ability of gas microturbines or battery storage to play a role, it's, it's an incredibly complex topic, I guess, is my, my number one takeaway from doing this so far, David. Well, I think well, it's I think like it's eating an eating elephant. You just have to take one bite at a time. I was interested to read in one of the submissions that uh, uh, there's a group in Carnarvon that's uh, fa totally fascinated with solar up there where one of the microgrid exper uh, experiments are going on. I think they call themselves the Fruit Loops, don't they, or something like that? I certainly haven't met any Fruit Loops in Carnarvon, but... Um, but no, the... no, there was a group in one, in, in, in one of the submissions that actually that talks about the, the group, up, group there up there calling, calling themselves the Fruit Loops. Loops. It's an official, official term for the Carnarvon PV community. Well, they are... Uh, I guess, I guess the, 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 the more serious, serious question, question I wanted to ask is an, an issue that arrives that every time we start talking about distributed energy, distributed grids behind the meter, is that uh, there's always the worry about who is going to pay for the assets in general, and more particularly about the new investment that's going to be required in things like uh, meters, and the fact that you still need the transmission networks. Everywhere around the world, this problem's cropping up. And those transmission networks have less volume going through them. So, so how do you pay them? Have, have, have the people that you've been talking to, like Horizon Power, have, have they got some thoughts about how to deal with this? So as I say, the, the question, your question goes more generally to the regulatory aspects of um, this whole debate, which centre on the way that networks are valued, operated, and then how investment in them is undertaken. And they are very material questions. Um, we have had submissions and they're um, on those particular questions. But I've flagged fairly consistently in all the hearings that this is such an important topic uh, that it does warrant a more detailed inquiry and it will happen. Those sorts of questions will be answered in the second half or we'll, we will ask those questions um, in the second half of this inquiry. Sure thing. I've got an um, interesting question um, just about the general politics, maybe, of what's happening in Western Australia. I remember going over to um, up to Geraldton in 2012 for the opening of the Greenough River solar plant, which was a 10 megawatt plant, and it was actually the first large-scale solar plant in Australia. Um, it seems strange to think about that now as we're talking about we're opening 50 megawatt and 100 megawatts, and developers are talking about 500 megawatts and even 1,000 megawatt plants. Um, but look, I do remember at the time, and it was when the uh, the Liberals were in power and the then Energy Minister, Peter Collier, um, was fairly disparaging about the technology in the plant that he was opening. He was, you know, it was, it was a very hot day. There was lots of flies. He accused the, he reckoned the flies must have been greenies. And he basically said he hoped he never had to open another solar plant again, and um, which is all a bit depressing. And um, in, in fact, the Liberals didn't actually provide that much support for renewables over the subsequent few years. And, and um, 
I think I saw in one AEMO document, I think there was actually 8 megawatts of large-scale renewables was added to the grid over a three-year period from 2013 to 2016. Jessica, I know you're not part of the Cabinet, but what's the atmosphere now in, in, in WA? What's the new WA Labor government thinking about in terms of renewables? Um, I noticed that most other Labor states actually have their own sort of state-based target. Is there any sort of conversation around that at the moment in, in WA? Well, the Premier and the Energy Minister have both been very clear that the, there will not be a, a state-based renewable energy target here in Western Australia. We will be participating in the national scheme. And I know that the Energy Minister at the moment um, has a project underway in his office to have a look at what the implications of the all the shenanigans around the, the National Energy Guarantee will have for us here in Western Australia. The fact of the matter is, though, we are pro-renewables and we very much want to look forward towards what our energy future looks like. We we really, we initiated the last time we were in government a whole series of market reforms aimed at um, uh, introducing more competitive and downward pressure on price and trying to shake things up here in the electricity market. We subsequently saw over the last eight and a half years, there really hasn't been any change in the way that energy policy has um, uh, progressed, other than a decision to put Synergy and Verve, the state-owned generator and state-owned retailer, which we had disaggregated, back together. And that, that has had some, some uh, fairly significant and, and some would argue um, negative impacts on, on the development of energy policy in the market here. Um, we have to recognise that the system now has well and truly moved on. The way, as I said before, electricity is being produced and consumed, what consumers want from their system, and their expectations as well about sustainability and renewables are much higher. And we need a system that responds to that and a policy framework that responds to that. So the minister in his office is, is working across a whole range of different initiatives, um, first and foremost of which is uh, looking at um, a uh, constraint network access arrangement um, for the Southwest Interconnected System. Um, up in the Pilbara, they're looking at uh, covering the uh, electricity network up there, to, so it comes under um, the network access code and, um, and the way that they will set regulation up up there will be something to keep an eye on. But we do recognise that things have fundamentally changed, energy policy hasn't, it's not good enough for us to just bring it up to date. What we need to do is have a think about what sort of an energy system are we going to have moving forward? What do our what do our people here in Western Australia expect of their energy um, networks? What how would they like to participate? And how do we then go about creating the policy framework that is adaptable and responsive to that, um, and that at the same time still secures that reliable energy supply? I must say, it, it seems, seems wacky, wacky in West Australia that, you know, there's gas competition at the retail level, but not electricity competition. Uh, the whole system just seems fairly screwy to me uh, from the outside, but that's, I guess, you're the local, you probably understand it a lot more. 
For retail contestability, um, I would argue, hasn't delivered as many of the benefits that some would say it has on the East Coast. I note that there have been a series of um, Productivity Commission reports, Grattan reports, that shown that really what has tended to happen in East Coast jurisdictions where you have full retail contestability in electricity, what's tended to happen is a whole heap of overhead has been built in and really people are paying far more for telemarketing centres and slick advertising campaigns for essentially a commodity that is very uniform. Um, so I, I don't think that um, it is the silver bullet that a lot of people hold it out to be. And so I, I guess the, there does need to be um, some consideration given to those issues, but I certainly don't think it's the, the, the sort of as I say, the silver bullet for problems here in, in, the, um, in the Western Australian energy market. On the other hand, the if other you have hand. got a centrally owned and government owned uh, generator retailer, it does give you an opportunity to uh, direct policy rather than letting the market decide. How do you see that opportunity? One of the really interesting things to consider in this context is the role that Horizon Power has. Um, Horizon Power is one of the only uh, vertically integrated uh, energy companies left in Australia. I think it may be the only one other than Northern Territory Power Water Corp. Um, but, so they have a very, very clear line of sight from the point of energy production, in fact even prior to, from the point of purchasing gas to feed as feedstock or procuring particular classes of energy assets right the way through to retail, retailing and energy consumption. Their very clear line of sight along the entire energy supply chain has given them the opportunity to do some really fantastic innovation. So the committee did fly up to Carnarvon, um, spent a, a fantastic day actually with the Horizon Power team up there where they took us through the sorts of different tariff models they're exploring, the different sorts of retail offerings that they're, they're trialling with their customers and their vertical integration allows them a lot more flexibility to be really genuinely innovative. And when you consider the other opportunities for innovation in this um, particular uh, development, particularly around the Internet of Things and getting smart appliances that could potentially be appliances that could potentially be dispatchable. We really do need um, participants in the market that have that very clear line of sight from production right the way through to consumption. It's really interesting that point about Horizon because they're one of the few utilities, as you say, that actually combine the network with the retailing to consumers. And so that means that they can then make their choice of cheapest generation. So, of course, what they're looking to in the future now, and I've talked to Frank Tudor on a number of occasions, he's the CEO of Horizon. They're talking about, well, what's the cheapest generation? And he's got absolutely no doubt that it's wind and solar and other renewables. Whereas on the eastern states, we actually have our vertical integration goes from marrying the retailer with the generators, and the network's a completely separate entity. And so the retailers are more interested in trying to protect those generation assets, which inherently are the old incumbent fossil fuel technologies. And so the network operators who may see the opportunity in distributed generation and solar find their, find it very hard to get in and, and, and it seems to be a bit of a conflict here and I can see David's going to jump in very quickly on that but it's it's not a, it's not a clear and obvious solution but it's a complex one and um, very interesting. Well, well, Giles, you know, if you look in West Australia, what's the point of being able to direct all the wind and solar and believing in decarbonisation if you don't have a renewable energy target? I mean, it's, you know, you've got all this power but then you don't use it, so to speak. 
<laughs> yeah, well, that's that's quite possible too. Um, Jessica, I was going to ask, um, we have actually reported about some of the things that have happened in recent months, and most particularly the things that occurred after storms and bushfires and what have you, and happened most quite a bit down near the Esperance area. And so instead of reinvesting in the long poles and wires, um, they decided to do some like microgrids. So they some of those customers and a lot of them are rural customers and farms. They put in solar and storage and 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 backup and what have you. And they found that this is a much cheaper um, a much cheaper um, alternative to rebuilding poles and wires. Those things have um, regulatory hurdles to get over. Just to clarify this, is this something that the WA can handle, or is it beholden at that sort of level to what happens across Australia wide? No, we actually, I think it's one of the great privileges we have here in Western Australia and in, uh, in many respects we are insulated from a lot of the issues that are happening on the East Coast. Particularly we do have our own um, regulatory system here, so we are able to take more innovative approaches to the way, or different approaches, um, to the way that we uh, operate the thing, uh, the network. Now, it's a really important point, and just to come back very briefly to the point you made before about um, the cost of supply that Horizon Power's experienced being a lot cheaper because they've been able to adopt these technologies. That's relative to the cost of supplying electricity in regional Western Australia as opposed to metropolitan as well. The key point is that we need a framework that recognises difference and encourages system-wide optimisation. So it's a, and again to come back again to this point about full retail contestability. The other material point is you need to be very clear about the point in the energy supply chain at which competition is going to deliver the most benefit as well. So if you have the right price signals coming through the market, if you have the right regulatory framework sitting there sending those signals through, then you should have far more efficient energy sector outcomes. And that is something that we will be looking at um, in the second phase of our inquiry. Great stuff. Um, well, I look forward to um, seeing what you actually come up with. Um, just going to sort of throw one very quick question out there, Jessica. If it was up to you, how would you see the future grid in 20, 30 years' time? Well, I mean, I'd like to see us get to a position where there is as much consumer control over energy production and consumption as possible. One of the really fascinating things, though, is that, you know, you hear uh, Frank Tudor speak, and, and Frank and I have known each other for, for a long time. Um, Frank says he'd like us to get back to a point where energy's boring again. <laughs> and, I, and I think, I mean, I, I personally, you know, I completely geek out on it, but um, I think it's the most fascinating topic um, going around. But um, but it would be nice. Yes, we, I, I think things are going to be... Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I think if we're going to have systems on people's roofs and batteries in the shed and electric vehicles in the driveway, I'm not too sure it's going to get that boring ever again. Yeah, well, that's quite true. Mm. Well, David, um, you got another question or should we just wrap into the uh, news of the week? Well, I think we should wrap into the uh, news of the week. I just wanted to say thanks to Jessica uh, for having this inquiry. I do think West Australia has heaps of opportunities uh, to look at microgrids because of the very long distances and also lots of problems about how to pay for all the required infrastructure. And it's fantastic having a politician that will take such a detailed uh, technical interest in, in the topic. Yeah, indeed, I'd, I'd echo those thoughts. But just before we say goodbye to Jessica, David, um, look, I guess the major thing um, over the past week was actually happened at the start of this week, which is Liddell, AGL um, basically told Alinta, you're dreaming. And I guess Alinta knew they were dreaming. 
Um, it did unfortunately provoke another predictably um, incomprehensible reaction from the um, from members of the coalition government who now want um, um, want to force AGL to sell it to a lender at the asking price. I mean, this is getting a bit, it's getting beyond ridiculous, isn't it? Uh, it's not quite as entertaining as the wedding on Saturday night. Uh, uh, the, the dresses are less interesting and it's all totally predictable. It's been theatre for the buffoons from beginning to end. Uh, so I, I actually never paid any attention to it. I never thought AGL had the slightest chance of selling to, to, to Tony Abbott or, or, or to the um, Alinda Group, and I, I still don't. I'm much more interested in the integrated system plan. I'm more interested in looking at the California and seeing that they've got higher prices than Texas, but the monthly bill for households is lower. I'm more interested myself in Liddell and seeing how industrial power uh, can continue to be provided as we move to renewables uh, we'll eventually end up cheaper than the rest of the world, but we've got to keep all the big business running while we get there. I mean, Liddell, it, Liddell it, is a very old, 50-year-old power station that is going to close. I can't see what the problem in it is. Well, neither can I, but it, it seems to dominate our, um, our news pages and seems to dominate the thinking of the government. And it's quite extraordinary that you've got the energy minister still insisting that this is a bad choice, that it's bad for the nation, that we should be trying to force them to sell to Alinta. Charles, it's theatre. He's not saying that for you and me. He's not saying that to everyone who knows what the real situation is. That He's saying that to put up his bona fides to the right wing of, of his party so he can actually get on with the real job. But he's not getting on with the real job because he's making policies to satisfy that very same audience. This Jessica, policy doesn't happen. I, I just, yeah, look, I, I just, I just, I guess I just, I mean, I observe it from afar over here, but it just is um, indicative of the toxicity and the some of the irrationality that can enter into the debate around these sorts of issues. I mean, really, what you would have is a functional market sending the right signals, underpinned by a very clear position on on what renewable energy targets should have. And then you you let industry go on and develop it. it. It is completely inappropriate that a minister would set in, step in, and try and force one company to sell a dinosaur asset to another. It, it is if you don't look at the politics of it. If you look at the politics of it, it all makes perfect sense. And was the, 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 from beginning to end, it's been totally predictable. He is trying to he's trying to keep the show. I'm a faithful member of the right wing of the party, but in reality, the neg is going through. Progressive people are being appointed to positions of power and we are making progress. Look at the amount of renewables coming through. You have to look at the difference between what actually happens and what he talks about. I guess I'm just new to this whole politics thing, David. <laughs> I'm still learning the dark arts. <laughs> well, look, um, thank you. Look, um, it's been great. Look, um, very quickly, David, um, ahead of the week, I'm not too sure what you've got in your agenda or what you've seen coming up. I'm off to Adelaide to join the Australian Energy Storage Conference, and I hope to be hearing from... Um, Sanjeev Gupta, I think Audrey Zieberman from AEMO is going to be speaking, and also the new um, State Energy Minister will be the first opportunity to get to speak to, to him and listen to what he's got to say, so that should be interesting. Uh, I look forward to hearing uh, dispatches from that, from that, Charles. Good stuff. And Jessica, once again, um, well, thank you, David, and um, Jessica, thanks very much for joining us. It's been a fascinating conversation, and good luck with your inquiry. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, then. And thank you very much for our listeners. Thank you to our sponsors, Solaray Energy and What Watchers. Um, if you do wish to leave a review, please do so. Tell your friends about it. And we'll be back at the same time next week. Bye for now. 
Energy Insiders was brought to you by Solar Ray Energy, leading innovators of smart energy management technology. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Wattwatches, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs. Accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit whatwatches.com.au and take control of your energy use.